say to the Lord, you're my refuge and strength. You're the one in whom I can trust. You're my God, in you I will trust. I will not fear the terror of midnight or the arrow that flies in the day or the evil that stalks where the darkness is strong or the flesh that is wasting away. If I dwell in the shelter of Jesus and I hide in the shadow of God, I will say to the Lord, you're my refuge and strength. You're the one in whom I can trust. You're my God, in you I will trust. Though a thousand may fail in my presence, or ten thousand should fall by my side. You protect me from harm and the fears that alarm. In the shade of your strength I abide. When I call to you, God, you will answer. When I fail, you will stay at my side, at my side. You will rescue, sustain, and protect me because I am yours, and your love is mine. I am yours, and you, Lord, are mine. If I dwell in the shelter of Jesus, and I hide in the shadow of God, I will say to the Lord, you're my refuge and strength. You're the one in whom I can, whom I can trust, my God, in you I will trust. You're my God, I will trust. Amen. Trusting Him. That's the key, isn't it? Well, well, well. Take your Bible. Turn over to the Mark, to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We're going to read a portion of Scripture there in just a moment. Mark chapter 5. But 
While making their way across the Sea of Galilee, a storm arises. The disciples, of course, are fearful for their very lives, and they go and awake Jesus in hopes that he would, of course, save them. He rebukes the wind. Matter of fact, he says, peace be still. And then he rebukes them. And he makes the statement in verse 40 of chapter 4. He says, why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? It's an interesting statement, two statements, two questions. Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? There's such a wonderful lesson in those two questions, isn't there? The lesson that we learn is that fear and faith are not compatible. They don't exist side by side. That doesn't work. God's not endorsing recklessness. He's rather indicting fearless faithlessness, excuse me. You know, we're not to be governed by fear, but faith, the Bible says. We're not to be controlled by fear, but by faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible says, Fear God, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now let's be honest. Fear is paralyzing. And if I had to kind of categorize fear, I would say that it's one of the top three reasons we fail to share our faith. Obviously, there are other reasons, but I think it's in the top three. So upon reaching the shore, these disciples, along with the Lord Jesus Christ, is met by two men. Two men, at least according to the account in Matthew. Now, in this particular account in Luke, and also in the, uh, I mean, this uh, particular one in Mark, and also the one in Luke, we're only going to read about one man. But when they arrived on that shore in the Gadarenes, they're going to actually be confronted by two men. One would say, well, why is it that Luke and Mark only mention one of the men? Well, I, I think that it's possibly that this particular man is the ringleader, or at least we know he does all the talking. We could also ask the question, whatever happened to the other man? I mean, why why doesn't the Bible mention anything about him? That's the point. I don't know what happened to him. The Bible doesn't say anything. We're not given any answers as far as what happened to the other man. All we know is what happened to the man that ultimately Jesus confronted and the one that spoke to him. Now, there are always people that are confronted with truth and are never to be heard from again. You're going to share the truth with some and they'll, you'll never hear from them again. You'll never see them again. You'll never run into them even again. Nonetheless, in this particular passage, we turn our attention to this most difficult and hopeless creature, often referred to as the maniac of Gadara. And so here in Mark chapter 5, verse 1, We read, and they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. We have come out of the ship. Immediately there met him of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. No man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, 
and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. It's interesting, isn't it, as we look at this man who would be, as we would define him, as demon-possessed. We see the supernatural strength that is his. In verse 5, And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. If you have a child that's cutting themselves, can I tell you to get them help? You, you, you need to get them help. All right? You're not big enough or tough enough or smart enough to handle it probably if you haven't handled it already. Quit trying to act like it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's related to and associated with demonic activity. You need to be, take it very seriously. It's harmful. It's not healthy. And uh, it, it can be addressed and dealt with. So don't just dismiss it, please. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. And cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? You say, that's crazy. Why would he come running and worship, but then turn around and say, What do I have to do with thee? Well, I think it's important to realize who's speaking. In one sense, incident, or one, one position here, or one person speaking is the man, the other is the demon. See, when you're demon-possessed, you have two people, the person and the demon. In one hand, the man comes running over to Jesus. The Bible implies that he ran to him and worshipped. On the other hand, the demon says, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. It would make no sense for the man to run to Jesus and then say, I'm worshipping you, but don't torment me. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Hmm. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. Demons are disembodied spirits. They're always looking for some place to dwell. And in this case, if they cannot dwell in a man's body, they are content to dwell in the swine, if that's what it takes. Verse 13, And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. It's amazing that he would even agree to the request of demons. You think how much more he would agree to your requests and mine? Verse 14, And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city, because, wait a second, I missed a portion of it. I like this part. And he entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea, and they were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. Not good. 
By the way, that's what a demon wants to do to you. Literally destroy you, kill you. Verse 14, And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. You know, we got this idea today that this stuff's like, you know, a bad movie. A bad movie right here. Demons. Can I tell you, as we draw nigh to the return of Christ, we're going to see demonic activity increasing. We're going to see the fact that there's going to be more people demonically possessed as we draw nigh to the return of Christ. And in, during the, the time of the tribulation, there will be demonic activity like, just like there was in Jesus' day. The way it was in Jesus' first coming was the way it will be as he approaches the second coming. Demons are real, by the way. Children, there's nothing to be afraid of, of a demon. Don't be afraid of the demons. Just trust Jesus. You'll be okay. Parents, you better protect your kids, though, by making sure you don't leave open doors, spiritually speaking. Be very careful. And verse 15, they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil. Oh, excuse me, verse 14. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country, and they that went out, uh, they went out to see what it was that was done. <clears throat> and they came to come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. When he was coming to the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not. But say unto him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed, began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. I want to take just a few minutes tonight, and I want to consider this topic. Successful evangelism. Successful evangelism. I don't know that there's a story in the Word of God that accentuates a successful evangelistic outreach any more than that particular contact. If there was one creature, one person on earth that they would have said, he is too hard a case. It will never happen. You might as well not waste your time reaching out to him. He'll never hear. He wants nothing to do with you. It would be this man. And yet we see his life transformed and changed before our very eyes. So I want to speak to you about successful evangelism. So let's spend just a few moments tonight doing that. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you thanking you for these that have gathered. And Lord, we are asking you to meet with us and to just help us through your word to be reminded again of our responsibility to reach the world with the gospel. May we, Father, be quick to... Be obedient, and may we allow you, Father, to work in our lives. Now, use this account in your word to inspire us and enable us, Lord, to be more effective for you. We love you now. We need you. 
In Christ's name, amen. First of all, I note the evidence of successful evangelism. The evidence. They're going to say, well, what in the world does successful evangelism look like? Well, I think we see it right before our very eyes. First of all, word spreads. Notice verse 14. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. I mean word spread. When effective evangelism is taking place, people are going to talk about it. When the word of God is being given in a way where it's ultimately affecting others, then people will talk about it. Word's going to spread. Years ago, I received a phone call from a particular man that had reached out to a church in our area about witnessing to a lost family member here in the Akron area. That particular church told him to call Community Baptist Temple because they specialized in that area. Now, I don't know about you, but I was very happy to take that call that day. Now, I know that today in the world in which we live, not everybody's as thrilled about winning souls and trying to reach the world with the gospel. And some people may say, all you care about is soul winning. But my friend, I promise you this. When you stand before the great white throne judgment, you'll wish to God you'd witness to more of your family. And you'll wish to God that you'd made it a priority to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And so will I. I guarantee you I have a lot of room for improvement. And I would imagine there's not a person on earth that doesn't. Word spreads, though. Evidence of successful evangelism. Curiosity grows. Curiosity grows. In verse 14 again, we note that it says, and they went out to see what it was that was done. Man, they were hearing about things they wanted to see with their own eyes. They wanted to see what was taking place, and they wanted to experience it firsthand. They were curious. I'm going to tell you something. When evangelism is really transpiring and taking place, I'm talking about successful evangelism. People's lives are being affected and lives are being changed. I promise you this. There's going to be word spreading and there's going to be a curiosity growing. And that brings us to that point again in verse 15 that is so important when there's evidence, evidence of successful evangelism, we cannot speak about successful evangelism without this particular issue. Notice, change ensues. Over here in verse 15, and they, came, and they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion. I like that it was, he was, notice, him that was possessed, and had the legion. They don't have it no more. He's no longer possessed. As a matter of fact, what they found was, they found a man there, according to the word of God, that was sitting and clothed and in his right mind. Earlier, if they'd have went out there into that, that place, into that mountainous area, they would have found a man that was screaming and crying through those mountains, and he would have been naked and cutting himself, and he would have been in any way trying to, let's bind him, let's put him in chains, 
It wouldn't hold him. Let me tell you something. Something had miraculously taken place. There had been an unbelievable transformation that took place. And when I see successful evangelism in the past, and when I recognize it in today, I tell you this, and I can say it with confidence, change ensues. This idea that we go out with the gospel and nothing happens, there's something wrong. There's got to be a change. This idea that people are coming to Christ and saying prayers and nothing ever changes, something's wrong with that. I think to some degree it is a mark of our culture. The idea that we can simply add Christ to our wall of idols. Sure, I'll say that prayer. Sure, I'll trust the Lord. I trust myself. I'll trust Him. No, you can't trust yourself. You can only trust Him. We're going to have to be very careful to point out sin and point out the need for Christ alone. It is the resurrected Christ that needs to save our souls. Boy, I'll tell you what. This one cometh not but by prayer and fasting, I fear. And I believe today that there's such a sense of apathy when it comes to winning people and sharing the gospel that and, and we're, we're willing to accept anything because we just want to believe somehow something's happening but I'm telling you that when Jesus Christ enters a life just like yours it did something he did something we have got to be careful that we are experiencing successful soul winning and evangelism not just simply going out with a message Word spreads, curiosity grows, change ensues. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I understand that we can look at the inside of a person and, we, and, and from the Word of God's perspective and recognize that there's Christ in them. I get that. But if Christ is in them, then there ought to be some change of sorts. It may not be that they drop their alcohol immediately. They may still be bound by drugs. They may still be struggling with some of the sin that they have previously allowed themselves to become uh, so accustomed to. But let me tell you, there's something unique and different about their inside. Something's happened about their attitude and their outlook. There ought to be a difference in their perspective and ultimately their life. You know what, if we said today, let's take a poll. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ saves and delivers you from sin right then? We'd all be like, no, it don't happen. The maniac did. I think he's a harder case than any of your family members. He's a harder case than any of my family members. He's a harder case than anybody I know on earth right now. Why can't Christ do it? He can do it. I don't know that we believe he can, but he can. I want you to notice another mark or evidence of successful evangelism is not only that word spreads, curiosity grows, change ensues, but opposition arises. In verse 17, notice he says, and they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. Man, they wanted nothing to do with the Lord now. In John chapter 15, turn there, would you please?
If we polled the crowd tonight and I asked this question, how many believe that the likelihood of, that, that there's a greater likelihood of opposition moving forward from this day than there was behind us? You know, like, do, do, do you think that, it's, that we're more likely to experience opposition, even persecution moving forward in our country today than the past? What would be your answer? Absolutely yes, right? Based on some of the things that we've experienced and, and that we've noted throughout this last pandemic and even we see in Canada with pastor being thrown into a jail up there just for holding services. We understand as we look across our country and we see churches out in California who still are not permitted to have services. We recognize that the potential for an attack on Christ and the servants of the Lord is probably eminent, certainly higher than it was just a year ago. We're no longer protected by our constitutional rights. They can create any kind of pandemic or anything they want and tell us that it's in the best interest of the society to shut your doors and to silence your voice. Now, I know, I know we still have some freedoms in Ohio. I get that. I know that our governor has permitted us to hold services throughout. I know that they told us in the state of Ohio that we were permitted to do that. They're not going to send the, 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 uh, um, C, uh, the CDC or, 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 or the, um, the other group that comes around, a health department into our churches and shut us down. I get that. But can I tell you that there are governors in the United States of America that exhibited and exerted that power? And even though there are some that didn't, it's proof positive it's a power play. Because if it was really a pandemic that affected all of us equally, if it was really a, something that could hurt and harm us, then don't you think every governor would have protected their people? Why is it some states are open and others aren't? Because there's a power play in, in, in movement here. I'm telling, this is all about power. And I promise you this. If we can make it work in California, it can work in any state in the union. What are we going to do as a church when they tell us we can't knock on doors anymore? What are we going to do as a church when they tell us we can't preach and teach anymore? What are we going to do as a church when they say you can't meet in that big building because it goes contrary to, to the... It, it hurts the community. It's a potential health risk to the rest of the community. What do we do about that? When we don't see people falling, by, falling down and dying in our midst, we don't recognize our church family just crawling up the steps trying to just catch their breath. Everybody's not dying, but they keep telling us, there you go, see, you are a risk. I'm telling you, I don't know about you, but I see us dealing with opposition in the future. Not necessarily the so distant future either. There's a worse strain of COVID on the way, by the way. Isn't that amazing? But yet in the schools, and I know I'm, off my, I'm on a little soapbox now, but yet in the school system, they're trying to, in some school systems, trying to lower the standard for COVID to six to three feet now. You only need to be three feet away. Has COVID, I mean, COVID's not dangerous anymore. 
but, but people are all vaccinated. Then why do we have to have any distance? I'm not understanding what's going on here. And you know what? You probably don't understand it either. And if you don't understand it, it's probably because you have some common sense. And I promise you this, common sense plays no factor when people step up and say, leave our coast, Jesus. Leave the coast. Even though he just, just supernaturally fixed one of their biggest problems. Tourism is now going to skyrocket because the maniac's no longer going crazy. But they still want him to leave town. If the world hates you, chapter 15, verse 18, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my sayings, they will keep yours also. That was a long time ago he said those things. When he said those things, they were going through persecution. The, the, the God of this world, little g God, the devil, was as a roaring lion. It's interesting how he worked through the years. It seems in our day and age he's become an angel of light. And he has tried to deceive us. Be on the guard, be on guard. But if there is literally evidence of successful evangelism, there will be, the word, word will spread, curiosity will grow, change will ensue, and opposition will arise. That's a reality. That's how it's going to work. Now, what are the elements of successful evangelism? Verse 2, we note contact is one of them. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Contact with the lost is essential. Therefore, Christ commanded us to go. The Lord knew that we would not reach people with the gospel if we waited for them to come to us. It doesn't work that way. So he tells us to go. He says to go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. People say, well, why do you make such a big deal of going? Why do you make such a big deal of soul winning? Why do you make such a big deal of evangelism? Why do you make such a big deal of taking the gospel to the world? Maybe because that's why he left us. Contact is important. Isn't it interesting what we find that throughout this whole pandemic as well is that we are told not to have contact. It's interesting, even though we're now getting back on our feet, so to speak, the fact is, is more people are going to stay home and work from home. More people will continue to work over the internet, will not have any contact with human beings except maybe at work over some kind of, you know, Zoom meetings or something like that from time to time. But the truth is, is that direct contact with people is one more step, it, it, we've gone away from that once again. It used to be that I was upset and it concerned me that they had these, these ATMs. So when ATMs came out, I said, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. You say, that's stupid. No, it's because it's less contact. 
Now you don't have to go in a bank and talk to a teller. Now you just do all your business and you don't ever have to be confronted with any conviction. You don't, the Lord don't ever have to tell you you should pass out a track or talk to them about the Lord. So now there's ATMs, but now it's not just ATMs, is there? You don't even have to go to the grocery store anymore. No contact. You don't even have to go in and pick up your pizza anymore. I'm just saying, you say, well, I have to have contact. Yeah, and about the time you have contact, it's time to eat. You know you ain't witnessing then. <laughs> I mean, come on now. I'm just saying, look at the direction we're going in our world as a result of all the technology. We're becoming more distanced from one another. There's less contact. And can I tell you that the elements of successful evangelism necessitate contact. You have to be in contact with the lost. And that's why he told us to go. So what's the answer? We got to knock doors even more than ever then. Because there's less opportunity any other time. Yeah, but it's not very effective. It doesn't matter how effective it is. We just have to obey the command to go then. We got to do something to reach out and have contact with the lost. I don't suggest that you uh, send your teenagers to bars, your singles to the bar. Well, you need to have contact with the lost. So yeah, go ahead and go to the bar. That's, that's not what he's talking about. He doesn't want you to do that. So how's that person, that teenager, that young person going to have contact with people? If that's where they're meeting, then that's where they must go, right? Well, they can knock on doors. They can go to their local park and play some basketball with some people. They can do other things to reach out. They don't have to get involved in an area where it's compromising their convictions. But there has to be contact. Not only that, there must be compassion. In verse 7, we note in this particular passage, and he cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. And then we notice also in verse 19 that it says, How be it Jesus suffered him not, but say then, Go home. To, wait, I must, am I reading the right one? There it is, okay. He said, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord had done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. Now, there's two things going on. Here in verse 7, we note that Jesus must have seen the condition of the maniac. He confronts the maniac. He, I mean, he, he, he contacts him. He reaches out to him. He has compassion on him. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Jesus Christ is our greatest example. No one had compassion like him. Most people would have passed up the maniac. Most people wouldn't even have tried to have any contact with him. Most of us would have said, stay away. Don't go to that neighborhood. Don't go up in those mountains. There's a nutcase. There's a maniac up there. Jesus, he's got such great compassion. He's like, well, you know what? Let's go on through there, fellas. They could have probably landed the ship somewhere else at some point. They could have walked away. They could have done something. They weren't even really right in the city of Gadara. They had a ways to go yet. The fact is, is that I think that maybe he found his way there. He wanted to run into this guy. He had great compassion. In Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stoneth them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. The compassion of our Lord. Once again, we note Christ is our greatest example. 
we see the contact, the compassion, and I said I got ahead of myself, the confrontation. Again, verse 7, we note that confrontation. And then in verse 8, he says, For he has said, for he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. Jesus confronts the man, he confronts the demon. Contact's not enough, by the way. There has to be confrontation. So, yes, we contact, we come into contact with people, but unfortunately, if we don't confront them, it won't do any good. How comfortable are you with confrontation? I hate it. I despise it. I don't want anything to do with it. I'll go sit in the corner and you go ahead and just fight it out. Unless it's a fight that I really want to get into. I'm not a real confrontational person. You come in my office and you tell me what you're going to do, I go, praise the Lord, let's pray about it. If you ask me what I believe and what I think and what maybe God says, then I will share something with you. But if you come in telling me what you're going to do, I will not confront that. I can't change you if you've made up your mind. Nor do I want to change you so that you can blame me later for why it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to. I don't like confrontation. I don't like having to go to a Sunday school teacher that hasn't been consistent. I don't like dealing with a choir member who won't be faithful and consistent and on time. I like dealing with an adult Bible class leader that wouldn't say, prepare their lesson properly. I don't like dealing with somebody in charge that doesn't want to maintain the dress standard and the requirements that we put in place for those workers. I hate confrontation. However, successful evangelism demands confrontation. It demands it. You cannot have, for instance, there must be confrontation. You're going to have to expose the sin. You have to expose the sin. Then you have to explain the gospel. Then you have to extend the invitation. It's not enough to have simple contact. You must confront them exposing the sin, explaining the gospel, and extending the invitation. Elements of successful evangelism include contact, compassion, and confrontation. But can I tell you again, this word keeps popping up, change. The gospel has the power to change lives today. In verse 8, we saw that when the Bible says, for he said, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. Come out of him. And in verse 15, and they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed uh, and, and in his right mind. There was change that took place. I want you to know the gospel is going to change lives again. It is an element of successful evangelism. There has to be change. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Amen. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1.23, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. This word of God is going to bring change. The gospel has power, and it still has power. We have to quit settling for anything less than gospel power. And if we're trying to change people in our own 
ability in our own strength, in our own strength then we are going to fail in this area of, of successful evangelism. If I can be polished and I can go out with the best presentation ever, but the truth is if I go out in anything but the Spirit of God, I can be polished and I can be prepared, but if I don't have the Spirit of God, I will not be successful. And you say, well, I get a bunch of people to say a prayer. I don't care about your prayers. What I care about is a changed life. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ wants, some changed lives. I don't care if you go out every day and you don't see anybody saved and you go out weeping and begging God, praise God for that. But if you come back every single day and no one's ever changing, you see no results whatsoever in a life ever, ever, ever. Friends, you need to start asking yourself, what are you accomplishing? I understand that we live in a culture today that is sin sick and that they are overwhelmed with, with all kind of issues. I get it. I think we make more excuses for people than they even make for themselves. I think we want to believe so much that, that God used us to win a soul that we're, we're just assuming then that they've got to be saved. I'm telling you, if I lead someone to Christ and they do not show any evidence of salvation, I'm going to keep talking to them about salvation. I'm going to keep going, you know what? Did you put your faith in Christ? Well, yeah. So what's Christ done in your life? How's he changed your life? He moved into you. The Bible says that he lives in you. What has he done for you lately? How has your life changed because... God has moved in. I haven't. Then has God moved in? Was it a prayer you said? Or did you really receive and accept the Lord Jesus Christ by faith? I'm telling you, we need to start asking the tough questions. We need to confront people in these areas. We don't have to question their salvation all the time in the sense that we're trying to get them to doubt it. But what we do need to do is ensure that they are always, as the Bible says, examining themselves whether they be in the faith. Well, they are in the faith. Now, elements of successful evangelism. You say, well, you already talked about that three times. The evidence, the essentials, now I want to talk about the elements. Or excuse me, I just talked about the elements. Yeah, here we go. The essentials. Here's what you have to have, okay? Real simple, three things. What elements, what elements move men and women to reach out with the gospel and successfully evangelize the lost world? What elements do that? What's going to motivate you? What's going to motivate me? <clears throat> First of all, gratitude. Verse 18 says, And when he was come into the ship, talking about the Lord, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. The maniac was so grateful for what Christ had done on his behalf that he wanted to be with him. Do you know what the response to grateful people is when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ? They want to be with him. Now, I'm just going to say it. <clears throat> when we don't want to be with him, we don't want to read it, we don't want to pray, we don't want to be in church, we could just be downright ungrateful might be that simple. There has to be gratitude. Essentials of successful evangelism include gratitude. You have to be grateful. 
Grateful for what he did in your life. Grateful for how he delivered you from sin. Grateful for how he rescued you from a place that you ultimately would perish in. Grateful for the fact that he indwells you. Grateful for the fact that he listens to your prayers. Grateful for the fact that you're a child of God now. We have to be grateful. The maniac was grateful. What's another element or essential? Obedience. Look at verse 19. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And the Bible says, And he departed, and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. He was obedient. He was so grateful that he was willing to obey when he was told to remain behind and go home to his friends and tell them how great things the Lord had done for him and how the Lord had had compassion on him. He didn't say to Jesus Christ, well, you know, I just feel it's my ministry to follow you. I just feel that, that I ought to be with you, Jesus. Now, I know what you're telling me, but I think I could really be a help to you. He didn't do that. He didn't question the Lord. Immediately, what he did was obey the Lord. He was so grateful for how the Lord Jesus Christ had transformed his life and changed him 100 and 360 degrees almost. I mean, it was just a whirlwind. He was now going 180 degrees the opposite direction, and he says, I want to be with you, Jesus. And he says, no, no, go back home. Go, go back home. I like that. He said to go. Go home to your friends. I want you to note the parallel. You know, when you and I get saved, the Lord leaves us behind as well. I mean, when you get saved, you're so excited about the things of Christ that you think, man, I just want to go to heaven right now. And he says, no, 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 no. You stay behind. You stay behind and go home to your friends, your family and others, and tell them what I've done for you and the compassion that I showed on you. That's exactly what he does to us. Why did he leave me here? Why did he just take me? My life's a mess. Things are so upside down. I'll tell you why. Because he left you here to be a witness. That's why he left you here for the same reason. He told the maniac, you can't go with me. And in this case, Jesus is in heaven. You ain't coming to me right now. You stay home. You stay right where you're at and you do the work that I've asked you to do. Just be obedient. I just don't like it. Be obedient. I don't want to. Be obedient. I don't like it. Be obedient. Just do what you're told, please. Would you please be grateful enough to me to obey me? And in this case, the maniac didn't have to be asked twice. And once again, we have this crazy word that pops up. The essentials of successful evangelism. I mean, what elements move men and women to reach out with the gospel and successfully evangelize the lost world? Gratitude, obedience, and finally, change. Verse 20, and he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. Do you know why they marveled? Because of this unbelievable transformation. He began to tell them, who he was and what he used to be and what Jesus Christ had done for him. I'm sure that his reputation had even preceded him in many cases and people remembered the maniac and thought, wow, you cannot possibly be the maniac. 
I'm the man now. I used to be the maniac. And Jesus changed my life. You know, if anyone's ever going to marvel, and that's what the world needs to do today. You know, we're trying to be so much like the world. And what we forget is that if we're so much like them, there'll be no reason for them to be like us. I mean, what, what is it so different about you that would draw somebody that's not a believer? I mean, what is it about you that causes others to look at you and go, wow, I can't even believe that they can respond that way, that they act that way, that they live that way, that they have those standards, that they don't fall into blind with this and that? What is it so different about, what's so different about you that people marvel? I'm not talking about your weird different. I'm talking about your different in a biblical sense, in a Christ-like sense. If anyone ever marvels, it will be the result of your changed life. I'm telling you, an essential to successful evangelism is a changed life in the one giving the gospel. We want the person we're giving it to to change, but are we changing? Are we allowing Christ to change us? Are we allowing him to mold and make us? Are we allowing him to turn us into a Christ-like creature? What did he do for you when you got saved? How has your life been transformed and changed? And what has he been doing since? All of those are things that are essential when it comes to successful evangelism. Evidence of Christ working in your life will direct all eyes onto Jesus. See, throughout the message, change has stood out. It's always change. Successful evangelism demands change. It demands change in the one giving. It demands change in the one receiving. It's essential. It's absolutely necessary. Now, successful evangelism is always dependent upon our dependence upon God. But in a very practical sense, there can be no real evangelism without change. Change is the byproduct of the new birth. Change is evidence of a transformed life. Change is attractive to God. And can I tell you, it's attractive to the world. We're throwing our standards out the window today. We're dismissing them. We're acting as though they have no place in our lives, that God doesn't care about how we live or what we do or how we dress or what we think. All that matters is, is it our heart. Our heart's all that matters. Sadly enough, the world doesn't see your heart. and Don't see mine. All they see is the difference with this. I'm going to tell you something. They ought to see a difference. And that difference is attractive to a world that's lost and desperate for hope. When you can smile, like the song said this morning, in the face of turmoil and trouble, the world wonders at that. As the Bible says here, they marvel. And that is what the world needs to see if we're going to experience successful evangelism. Change is what causes the world to marvel. Change validates our message and it legitimizes the master. Change is what is needed in our lives so that the world will take note of God. Listen, if a maniac can be saved and his life transformed and changed, is there any reason why we shouldn't expect God to save and change men and women today? 
I, I love the story because I see the impossible being done here. Believers today say many of the wrong things. We say things like, well, it's a lot different today than it used to be. I just turned 58. I did not grow up surrounded with fundamentalism. I I didn't have the roots or the background maybe that some have had in this room. But even in my lifetime, with my background, I have seen a departure from biblical fundamentalism. I've watched it. I see it. And we hear things like, well, it used to be, and it's not like it was. Our young people don't need to hear that. If you fail to reach your generation, it's your fault. It's not God's. Because you have the same power to do it that any other generation had. This idea that we get a pass because the world's just so wicked... It's not working. Uh, Listen, literally, in the early church, they tried to change their world or at least died trying. You know what? We ought to be willing to give our lives to see the world change for Christ. We have lost that in America because comfort and ease has totally consumed us. But missionaries of the past, a hundred years and further behind, Back then, even in the 50s, in the 40s, in the 30s, literally were willing to lay their lives down to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. America has more money than we know what to do with when you can just throw $2 trillion out as though it's nothing. Can you imagine what we could do for the cause of Christ if we were so, can you imagine if we took every penny that the stimulus gave us and we put it toward evangelism? In this church, every person, every person got 1400 if we added all up, every single person. And if we took your, the money they were going to give to your children and we took it all and put it in one pile, can you imagine how much money that would be? I'll guarantee you we could pay our buildings off. But let's just say we used it solely for evangelism. We could put, I can't even tell you how many people in this room on the mission field within a month. It's amazing what could be accomplished if we got real serious about it. And I believe this is a good church. I believe there's some wonderful people. I believe before me is the best congregation in this city and this, I'll take you over any congregation that I know of and any congregation in the state of the United States of America, around the world. I I don't even want Ed Lorena's people, I want you. But let's be honest, we all have some room for growth here. I just want us to be serious about some things and let's be praying about some things. Man, I'm telling you what, there's no two hard cases. We can see the world turned upside down if we put our minds to it, if we work at it. God can still do a miracle. I don't believe revival's going to come, preacher, and I promise you, 
it never will with that attitude. It'll never happen. Say, well, the Bible says, well, why don't we quit worrying about what the Bible says in your mind and start focusing on what the Bible says when Jesus left. Let's take the gospel to everybody, and we'll let God worry about where it falls. But let's stop telling God he can't. And we'll trust God to do it. May we be grateful for what Christ has done in our lives. May we be obedient to go and carry the gospel to friends, family, and others in need. And may we be changed into the image of Christ, providing evidence of his existence and his great love for us. And I'll tell you what, we need that today. Successful evangelism. I think in the story of the maniac of Gadara, we recognize that there's tremendous hope to reach a world with the gospel. Everybody. Wouldn't it be great if you could be the one to lead the president of Russia to Christ? Wouldn't that be great? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm telling you that we, we, we just, we don't think big anymore. Well, God couldn't use me to do that. And that's why you'll never do nothing. I thought God was in the impossible business. Let's stop limiting God because of our insecurities. And let's start leaning on the Lord instead of our own understanding. Let's just say, Lord, I want to be filled with your spirit and I want to do something great on your behalf. Give me your grace, your mercy, and your strength. I just want to be obedient. Man, he'll use you. Young people, I don't know what God has for you, but I know it's much bigger than probably you've ever thought about or dreamed about. Quit settling for what the world offers you. Only, just don't do it. Stop settling for that. And start settling for only what Christ can do in your life. Have some big dreams on his behalf. Quit making your own dreams up. Start having his dreams. You will never regret giving your life 100% without reservation to him. Never regret it in your life. You will never regret it. Father, we need you.